you know, so uh, BlackRock's uh, uh, Investment Institute, you know, published a study on July 25th, you're looking at geopolitical risk, um, you know, at least the 10 most likely geopolitical risks that investors need to, to pay attention to. And number one on their list was potential conflict over Taiwan and the US-China sort of emerging long-term strategic competition, right? They listed that as the number one geopolitical risk to pay attention to. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Paris Templeman. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution, and it's my pleasure today to uh, chat with my friend and colleague, Matt Turpin, who is a uh, visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution specializing in U.S. policy uh, towards the People's Republic of China, as well as economic statecraft and technology innovation. Uh, he is also currently a senior advisor at Palantir Technologies, uh, and Prior to joining us at the Hoover Institution, uh, he served as the U.S. National Security Council's Director for China and a Senior Advisor on China to the Secretary of Commerce. Uh, in those roles, he was responsible for managing the interagency effort to develop and implement U.S. government policies on the People's Republic of China. Uh, before he entered the White House, uh, Mr. Turpin served over 22 years in the U.S. Army in a variety of combat roles. Uh, in the United States, Europe, and the Middle East, and he was also an assistant professor of history at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Uh, he retired from the Army in 2017. Um, he is also, uh, and most importantly for today's conversation, uh, the co-author of a chapter in our new uh, semiconductor working group report on uh, the challenge that uh, China's uh, potential emerging dominance in the semiconductor space poses for the United States and for Taiwan. Uh, that chapter uh, is co-authored with Robert Daly. It's entitled Mitigating the Impact of China's Non-Market Behavior in Semiconductors. Uh, and so, Matt, I thought I'd start us off today uh, by asking you to expand a little bit on what you mean by non-market behavior. Uh, what is the PRC doing uh, that qualifies as non-market in the semiconductor space, and why should we be concerned about that? Yeah, well, Chris, thanks so much for for having me on. Um, it's a real pleasure, and um, I wish our our colleague uh, Robert Daly could be with us as well. Um, all that's that's good in that chapter is is uh, is a credit to him, and 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 I I largely just trying to help along and 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 probably slowed things down. So. Um, uh, I'll do my best to sort of walk us through um, some of our conclusions. But um, you know, so non-market behavior, um, you know, I think you know, what we've seen over you know, a number of years uh, from the PRC is you know, a, a broad set of efforts by them to gain uh, really market dominance uh, through a variety of subsidies and interventions in the market. Uh, which make it so that com commercial entities find it very difficult to compete. Um, and you know, whether that's through uh, forced technology transfers uh, to force companies to, to turn over technology to, in order to gain market access into China, uh, cyber-enabled economic espionage, um, you know, broad industrial policies that provide unfair benefits to, to Chinese companies uh, so that they can be able to gain uh, market share and produce goods at artificially low cost, driving others out of the market. Um, these are the kinds of behaviors that that we've seen now for years. Um, we've seen this happen, 
you know, significantly in the semiconductor um, sector, you know, for the last 10 to 15 years, as Beijing identified for itself that that semiconductors was an area that they wanted to dominate and they wanted to move up the value chain uh, to become a, a market leader. They viewed the position that the United States and and Europe and Japan had in this sector as as a significant vulnerability to themselves from a national security perspective, um, which has now made it an area of 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 really pretty sharp rivalry uh, between the two countries. Um, so China has used uh, this strategy of non-market behavior to develop dominance in a lot of different industries and, and market spaces. And uh, we haven't in the past pushed back on this dominance as a kind of core national security interest of the United States. Uh, CHIPS seems to be different. Can you uh, tell our audience a little bit about why we should be concerned about PRC dominance in uh, the semiconductor chip space, as opposed to say autos or televisions or whatever else they might have developed this dominance in? Right. Um, so I think one, you know, first for the audience, I think it's important to remember that, um, you know, this this uh, understanding of the importance of semiconductors um, and yeah, and how they fit within a sort of our national security landscape is not new. Um, semiconductors, you know, from their invention in the 50s and the 1960s, have been at the centerpiece of, of U.S. Uh, uh, technological advantage in terms of, of a military advantage. Um, they, you know, from, from their invention, they were, um, the U.S. government placed significant export controls on them. Uh, this was seen as one of the most important aspects that the United States would have as a as a real competitive advantage over the Soviet Union, um, you know, these are these are these are pieces of electronics uh, that were first used in the space program and ballistic missile programs, um, and as we developed them out into into sort of the commercial sector, I and mean, this is what what gave Silicon Valley its name is that it was really this this sort of centerpiece of of, of a U.S. defense industrial base. Um, and so for a long time, this has been an important aspect of, of a military advantage. Um, and of course, this, this contest with the PRC over this is not, not new either. Um, you can go back to really the end of the Obama administration, um, just four days before the election, you know, November 2nd of 2016, you've got Penny Pritzker, the former Commerce Secretary in the, in the, in the Obama administration, giving a speech at, at CSIS, really laying out uh, the real problems with Chinese non-market behavior in the semiconductor field, the importance that it is to, to US uh, you know, technological leadership, both for national security and economic prosperity. And she really lays out a, you know, really a, 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 a roadmap for how the United States will need to respond to these sorts of things. And so if we were to take that from really, you know, now close to eight, Seven or eight years ago, to where we are today, um, you've got you've got a U.S. government that has seen what Beijing is trying to do and has sought to put into place a series of sort of counter moves uh, to prevent Beijing from moving up the value chain into the most advanced chips, while also having to deal with the reality that 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 China is is taking actions in more mature legacy chips. Um, I think you know for for our listeners, they should understand that. Um, you know, while, while chips are ubiquitous, I mean, they're in a variety of different 
um, uh, goods and, and uh, that we use on a daily basis, whether it's your, your smartphone that has about 160 different chips inside of it. Um, some of them are, are the most advanced ones that, 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 that you know, really just invented in the last year or two. And some are 20 or 30 years old that, 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 that still are the, like the workhorses uh, of electronics. And so there's this sort of broad variety of different types of chips. Um, and increasingly, they power really everything across our society. Um, and so they become essentially the linchpin of a number of different other industries and, and technological sectors that are important to us. Um, and that's why I think you know, the, the actions that, that certainly this administration has, has taken on semiconductors should really be seen as an effort uh, to sort of narrow in on, a, on, a, on, a, on, on some choke point technologies that, that, have, that have important uh, reverberations across other industry sectors, automobiles, aerospace, commercial electronics, military technology. It, they, it, when, when you work in semiconductors, it touches all of those industries because it's an important component in each one of them. I wonder if we could step back a little bit and look at the broader, broader strategic picture here. So um, you and Robert argue in the chapter that uh, whether we want to call it this or not, we're really in a new Cold War with China, that uh, China is not just a strategic competitor or rival, it's really an adversary of the United States. Uh, and uh, maybe another way to put this question is, uh, you argue that China wants to replace the U.S. eventually as the global hegemon, uh, and uh, chips and dominance of high technology are, are one important part of that long-term strategy. So uh, could you uh, describe a little bit why you think we're in a new Cold War, why that strategy is uh, a fundamental threat to the United States, uh, and then how they might uh, if if we don't push back against the Chinese uh, efforts to to dominate this space, how they they might succeed? Yeah, um, well, that that's almost due its own its own uh, you know the debate over uh, whether we're in a whole Cold War um, and what this rivalry looks like is certainly a, a big and important topic. I'll I'll try and you know sort of briefly kind of go through what I think sort of stands out as as sort of where where we're at. You know, first of all, I would I would. I think it's important for us to think of a Cold War as a condition. It's a geopolitical condition. And, and I differentiate that from sort of what we would think of um, as being a, a hot war, being you know, actual military conflict. You know, Cold War is one in which um, two rivals you know, are sort of pitted against one another and are competing uh, vigorously across all domains, economic, commercial, technological, ideological, um, informational, Yet they are avoiding direct military conflict, um, and and if we go back to sort of George Orwell, you know, in the in the article that you know, the essay he wrote, you know, really within two months of the dropping of 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 the atomic weapons uh, to end World War II, you know, he talks about nuclear weapons is about creating this condition of a of a Cold War, right, in which both sides are essentially unconquerable, that that Cold Wars push competition into other domains that that while states don't give up their 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 desire to gain uh, an advantage over their rival they judge the cost of direct conflict as being far too high and so it pushes that competition that pushes that rivalry into these other domains and i think that's that's an accurate characterization 
of the condition that we find ourselves in today with, with Beijing. Um, and so, and I think it's important for us to understand that, that, that this condition, I think from, from Beijing's perspective has been in place now for quite some time, largely because they view the United States and the international system that, that we helped build and we maintain, one that is sort of a liberal international order, they view that system as, as an existential threat to their own regime. They view that system as being purpose-built to undermine regimes like theirs and to advantage democracies and other sort of liberal forms of governance. And so from that perspective, they feel a very deep need to, to change the way in which the international system works to better favor and advantage them. And of course, in doing so, that places the United States and our friends and allies in a very disadvantaged position. And that's what's sort of at the, it's, it's at the root of where we're at. And so when you think about how Beijing would go about creating that condition in which they can set the rules and, and rearrange the international system, one of the key aspects is gaining a technological advantage. And of course, you know, if you go back to, to 2015, when they, when they published Made in China 2025, sort of one of their main kind of you know, broad industrial policies, you know, really semiconductors is at the centerpiece of that, right? Gaining, you know, preventing the United States and its allies from being able to have a chokehold over the most advanced technologies and semiconductors is one of those key aspects that they need to, to remove so that they can have that, that advantage. And I think, so we've seen that laid out now for you know, nearly a decade. Um, and we've been, we've been running sort of a, you know, a, a behind the scenes battle, right? So again, the United States has been taking a number of actions for years now. We go back to you know, President Obama, you know, one of his last actions in office uh, is, is to block under, under CFIUS the acquisition of a German semiconductor tool manufacturer called Axtron. One of the first actions by the, by the Trump administration is to use CFIUS to block the acquisition, uh, the Chinese acquisition of a US semiconductor called Lattice Semiconductors, right? So the, these actions have been kind of going on behind the scenes and, and not too many folks have, have sort of noticed it. I think Chris Miller does a great job in his book, Chip Wars, sort of laying this out and, and letting people see that this is a bigger thing that's happening. And so I think we're now seeing this sort of accelerate and come into sort of the public knowledge. But to me, it's one of those things where it's now, it's now simply illuminating what has already been there. Okay. Um, so let me piggyback on that a little bit and ask you to talk a little bit more about um, the basically the two major tools in the U.S. policy toolkit. One is carrots. We provide incentives for uh, chip manufacturers to move some of that uh, manufacturing uh, onshore to the United States or alternatively friendshoring it to other friendly partners and allies. Um, and then uh, what you've just referred to are, are sticks, uh, controls or, or ways to block uh, ultimately the, the CCP-backed companies from uh, gaining control over sensitive technology. Um, can you assess, uh, I mean, you've been right in the middle of these debates and conversations for the last you know, five, six, seven years. Um, can you assess how we've done so far in both of those, using both those sets of tools? Yeah, so, um, you, know, you know, from a, so if we, if we break it into these two categories of sort of carrots and sticks, um, you know, 
historically we've relied upon simply uh, you know a, a, a really vibrant, innovative commercial market to really drive the sort of the carrot side. Right? I mean, until until the Chips and Science Act, um, you know, certainly there had been some you know significant NSF funding and and various other sort of government R and D funding in the past that have covered you know advances in chips manufacturing. Um, but but really the Chips and Science Act you know launches a sort of a departure in which you know for in many cases we could see one that Beijing's actions in the commercial space were undermining the prospects of of ability of our companies uh, to be able to compete fairly and 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 be able to provide us the sort of chips and outcomes in ways that in which they weren't essentially going to start popping up and and being manufactured inside the PRC and so we needed to start to intervene in certain ways to ensure that that both for having manufacturing expand inside the United States, uh, but also to be able to strengthen and diversify that manufacturing of chips in 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 third friendly countries that we could enable that. And so that's that's really what the Chips Act is sort of about is is to is to be able to bring that about. And it's really a sort of a new intervention uh, that we hadn't hadn't, hadn't taken in quite a few years um, around this. Um, the stick side, I mean, obviously, as, as I as I'd mentioned, this is not this is not the first time the United States has taken measures to restrict uh, a rival or an adversary's access to, to semiconductors. Again, this this goes back to the invention of semiconductors as one of the first sort of things that that the U.S. government takes actions to prevent uh, and restrict its export uh, to unfriendly countries. Um, you know, the difference with with where we've been with with semiconductors on 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 the PRC is that in the 1990s and the early 2000s we began to we began to lift some of those restrictions on the export of advanced chips to to China particularly as China became the global hub of electronics manufacturing it then became you know really centerpiece of driving uh commercial manufacturing is that China needed to have access to those most advanced chips to be able to put them into the electronics that they were manufacturing and of course, you know, they use that leverage to then gain access to those chips for their own military and national security purposes. And it's really that action in, in, in October of, of 2022 that the, that the Biden administration took, which was begin to take sort of serious efforts to really restrict China's overall access to the most advanced chips. And, and up until that point in time, it had been it been an effort to only restrict to sort of certain end users, right? So so actors that we would see handing chips off, most advanced chips off to 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 Chinese military units or things like that. Well, then we would we would place a restriction on that individual company, but then certainly another front company could be stood up almost immediately. And so the October seventh effort was to essentially do a block on all things into the to the PRC as a jurisdiction. Um, which which essentially returned us back to the kind of Cold War export controls that we had had in place, right? Yet, yet and more evidence that what we've returned to is essentially this Cold War, right? But when you look at the October 7th rules around mo the most advanced semiconductors, this looks like the kinds of controls we had in place on the Soviet Union and its allies during the Cold War. And so that, to a certain degree, that's, that's another aspect of, of how we're returning. And then I think what's most important is that the Biden administration has been relatively successful at convincing the handful of other countries in the world who have access to this most advanced technology to also place their own controls, right? Which again, harkens back to, to 
something called COCOM, the, 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 the coordinating committee, whose job it was, which was to do multilateral export controls during the Cold War against the Soviet Union. And essentially, we formed a similar sort of process on that uh, with Japan, with the Netherlands, with, ta with Taiwan, uh, increasingly with, with South Korea, for them to be able to take actions and to sort of match what the US government is doing. And so I think what we're seeing is a ratcheting up of this process so that we figure out sort of what is the right position to be at to prevent the flow of the most advanced ships to, to China, while simultaneously making sure that we are taking actions to ensure that our own commercial companies can continue to operate and, and do what they need to do. And that is that that is a difficult and daunting task uh, that that they that the Commerce Department, the Bureau of Industry and Security, has responsibility for and is continuously trying to trying to adjust. Yeah, so I'd note um, the Biden administration just this week announced a new series of restrictions on outward investment. Um, and uh, I, I would note um, it, the normal politics of this have been pretty scrambled. They, 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 it doesn't line up on partisan lines at all, unlike most everything else in Washington. And so I wonder if you could provide your own assessment of uh, whether the Biden administration has got the uh, level of restrictions and the, the categories correct, or whether you think they need to ratchet up or expand, uh, or, or uh, what else should we know about this issue? Right yeah. Now? So, so what, what happened this week, what, you know, what was signed, I think on Monday, uh, was, was a long rumored executive order, um, that, that has been sort of popping around, uh, the administration and, and talk on Capitol Hill now for, really since the end of the Trump administration. And it was about essentially, you know, so if we think of, of sort of three aspects of the sort of, and, and, and I know we talked about tools earlier being carrots and sticks, but if we sort of think about this in, in a different sort of way in which, which we think about exports, uh, you know, restricting exports is, is one way to, to, to sort of exercise economic statecraft in which you deny arrival the most advanced technology. You restrict the, the physical export of that technology. Another way in which you sort of exercise economic statecraft is by denying an adversary or a rival the ability to purchase a company that makes that most advanced, right? And that, that is what we think of as inbound or foreign direct investment screening or restrictions, right? And that's something that, that, that is done underneath CFIUS, the Committee for Foreign Investment of the United States, which has been in place since the 1970s, another Cold War uh, uh, invention. Um, and that job is is to look at to, so that so that a foreign rival can't come in and buy a U.S. company that makes the thing that you're already restricting, right? So that's that's what CIPIA sort of does. And of course, there's a third aspect that 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 this action by the Biden administration represents, and it's the export of capital and know-how from the United States to start a company somewhere else, right? To start an operation to make something advanced in another country. And up until this point in time, while we had had some restrictions on investments into the PRC and you know and certainly we have we have restrictions on investments in other countries. I mean, nobody invests in North Korea, in Iran. So I mean, underneath sort of IEPA, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, we can we can block folks from making investments in certain jurisdictions. Um, but we had not taken many of those actions against uh, against the PRC. And so now we have uh, an executive order which talks about countries of concern and really in the annex of that, that executive order, it really names just the PRC, Hong Kong and Macau. Um, and, and it really labels that out as a place where 
they're going to begin screening and making certain restrictions on investments. You know, I think that um, you know what we've seen from the administration is a is a tentative first step. Um, it's you know, truthfully, I don't I don't think that it's nearly uh, enough to be done. Um, this is a and this is a very tentative first step, and it and there's probably a year. I, I, in the order, it lays out a year in which the Treasury Department has to come up with rules for this. So, so it's probably a year away before there's any enforcement. Um, and and to be honest, we have known about this problem for years now, and it's been studied. Um, and I, I think we could have moved much faster, and and we could do much more in this space. Um, but but it is the decision that that the administration made. Um, certainly, there are there are uh, voices on the Hill um, who advocate that we not restrict investments like this, and there are voices that are asking for much stronger investment or much stronger restrictions on this. And so, I suspect that that what we'll see is over time uh, a development of this this tool, this this uh, this set of authorities over time. Obviously, one of the other things that has been that has been debated is does 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 Congress act to, to be able to sort of create the, the the legal foundation for investment restrictions? You know, some would argue that the International Emergency Economic Powers Act has plenty of authority there for the president to take these actions. It is the authority the president used to sign this executive order. Um, and others would claim that that you know he's, he needs to have Congress take some action on this side. I think you know it probably is a good idea to have Congress take an action and be able to sort of do this. It's it's how CFIUS got started is that the administrate, you know, uh, you know, the executive branch took action and then we had it substantiated by by Congress afterwards. And so maybe that's the same path that will follow this. Um, but but I, I think that it, it really needs to be done is, as we sort of think about the, the economic statecraft tools that we're going to use and, and apply over time, you need to have sort of these controls over exports, over inbound investment and outbound investment to be able to sort of uh, calibrate how you're going to act. And, and, and truthfully, begin to incentivize and encourage companies that, that maybe China is not the place where you should be putting you know, most of your eggs. You should be moving them to other places um, because of the vulnerabilities that are presented with a long-term rivalry that we have with them. Um, and so, so those are the kinds of things that I think are need to happen over time, but, but we're, we're not quite there with what, what came out this week. Okay. Um, so some of these actions do seem to be having an impact already. There's, um, exports to China are down. FDI going into China has actually fallen pretty dramatically over the last couple of years. Um, I know from my Taiwanese friends and colleagues, they're quietly talking about shifting a lot of production outside of China. Um, and so uh, do you see these uh, trends as um, set once set in motion, are they uh, inexorable? Are we um, likely to see these continue? Or is there something that the Chinese side can do to reverse these trends? They do have a vote here, for instance. Yep. They, they, they can uh, attempt to increase investment in new ways. Um, they can encourage workarounds and so forth. So what is your own thought on, on how likely it is we'll see this trend continue? Yeah. So in, in, in terms of the sort of the broader trend that, that we're witnessing, because obviously sort of those, you know, that foreign investment going into China and, and trade and all that, um, you know, that's, that's, that's sort of 
much broader than sort of the, just the semiconductor realm. And so if, if we're to look at that, it's just sort of like, what's the broader trends that are going on here? Um, you know, of course, Beijing could adopt policies that, that would turn that around. It would, it would be the kinds of sort of domestic economic reforms that, that might make foreign investors and business leaders much more confident in being able to stay and, and that they'd have a much better chance to, to be able to compete in the country um, but, but it's Beijing that I think is, we should keep in mind is doing the most to, to cause these trends to happen. You know, certainly the U S government and, and Japan and, and, and Europe have taken actions and that's, that's had an effect, but, but we should remember that, that much of this is being driven by Beijing, uh, and their own set of policies internally, um, you know, as, as we see sort of a deep securitization of the Chinese economy. And, and so I think that's that's one important trend. Um, of course, Xi Jinping could reverse that, but I think it's very unlikely to see that, right? They're making these decisions for their own sort of domestic um, uh, political decisions. And for him to reverse this would be to sort of walk back his own set of policies. And so I think that we're unlikely to see that. You know, the other would be is that I think certainly Beijing sees themselves in a Cold War with the West and the United States in specifically. So, so they are they are therefore seeking to make themselves less vulnerable to the kinds of dependencies that they have on us. And so they're seeking uh, to do that. Um, I think it's important for folks to remember that that being decoupled is not a prerequisite of the start of a Cold War. Economic decoupling is the product of a Cold War, right? That it it comes from the waging of it. It 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 happens over time as each side follows its own sort of logic, which is it wants to make the other side vulnerable and dependent upon it while making itself less dependent upon the other side, right? And that as each side does that, cumulatively, that means there is less economic interconnected tissue that, that sort of connects the two countries, right? And so I think just thinking about the sort of the logic of how the condition of a Cold War will unfold over time, is that that is likely to be the kinds of outcomes that you see. Now, could that reverse? Well, it would mean that, that fundamentally that broader condition changes, right? Could we get back to a period where the United States and the PRC do not view each other with deep suspicion and hostility? Sure. But for the United States to do that, it would mean that, that we would largely view that the PRC has kind of given up on its desire to sort of protect a, an authoritarian regime and change the international order to protect itself. Right. And for the PRC to, to give up on its position, it would be that it would have to stop thinking that the United States is going to, to do things to protect the international order um, and, and make it make the world safe for democracy. And so I, I, I guess those two things are those things could happen. I don't find that very likely. Um, and I think what we're watching now is that business leaders and investors are seeing that that is, in fact, the case. Right. I would I would point everyone. You know, so uh, BlackRock's uh, uh, Investment Institute you know, published a study on July 25th. You're looking at geopolitical risk. Um, you know, at least the 10 most likely geopolitical risks that investors need to, to pay attention to. And number one on their list was potential conflict over Taiwan and the US-China sort of emerging long-term strategic competition, right? They listed that as the number one geopolitical risk to pay attention to. I would argue, I would remind folks that they also listed, you know, the lack of progress on climate change as number nine of their most likely risks. And so, 
when BlackRock itself, world's largest asset manager, views this as the number one geopolitical risk, we should probably all pay attention that that's how markets are now starting to respond to this. You know, I would remind folks that, that just this week, Denton's, the, the largest sort of Western law firm in China, uh, decided to spin out and hive off its, its, its China business. Um, that is a big step, right? It's the same thing we saw with, with Sequoia just a couple of months ago to spin out their China business. And so these are the kinds of things that are happening. Um, and I think these are important sort of milestones to watch and understand that as companies and, and investors make these decisions, it's really hard to imagine how they get, how these pieces get put back together again. Great. Um, so I, I want to uh, kind of bring our conversation to a close with one big question that uh, is running through this entire report, uh, and that is the issue of legacy chips. Um, your chapter deals with this a little bit. Um, just about every chapter touches on this question, and I don't know that our report as a whole has a kind of concrete answer for the challenge. So uh, the big concern here is that um, while the PRC is unlikely to develop dominance in the most cutting edge chips uh, so that the TSMCs of the world are going to continue their, their pattern of dominance in that area, um, the, the PRC's unique strengths and weaknesses in this area uh, may well lead them to establish market dominance in the older chips, you know, the seven nanometer and higher um, it, over the next few years. And part of the reason is that those chips aren't especially profitable to make, but if uh, you know the PRC is providing enormous subsidies to produce these chips and they don't have to engage in a whole lot of technological innovation, um, they could well uh, dominate that sector and make the rest of the world reliant on them. And so uh, the big question then, or the challenge that that poses for the US and other partners and allies is how do we avoid becoming overly reliant on a Chinese supply of legacy chips when they're still critically important for all of the, for many of the electronic devices that we rely on in our modern economy? Yeah, um, I mean, this is a, this is a real dilemma for us um, because of course, you know, the most advanced chips, well, we get, they get a lot of attention um, and I think we're likely to be successful in preventing the PRC, you know, you know, at least in sort of the near to medium term from being able to sort of catch up in those, in those chips. Um, they're likely to push their, their, their energy and their resources uh, to, uh, to, to sort of an, an overcapacity in making more legacy chips, right? And of course, um, when you look at sort of how uh, you know the economics of of chip production sort of works, you spend a lot of money to make the most advanced chips and to sort of start and and move the 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 the, the sort of innovation window forward, right? And of course, when you make those 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 chips, you're not selling that many because they aren't yet integrated into a whole bunch of new products. Um, and what you depend upon is your production of more legacy chips, you know, older, more mature chips for those to fund the, to the, the research and development that's going to continue to push forward the new ones, right? And so, um, of course, Beijing already knows how to make and is already producing those legacy chips, right? So if we, as we look at sort of where they're able to sort of work, Right, we made a decision that we were going to sort of draw the line at sort of 14 nanometer chips, 
And then anything that was older than that, right? Your 28 nanometer and those things that are older, right? We weren't going to try and control largely because Beijing already knew how to make those things, already had the tools, already had the know-how. And so really it would make no sense in trying to take action in terms of an export controls uh, on, on those chips, they already have them. Um, and so as they build those out, one of our challenges is going to be is that you know, in order to keep sort of a viable and, and innovative commercial sector, right, they're going to need to be able to sell their chips for you know, a certain period of time to be able to recruit you know, the, you know, through revenues the, the money to be able to invest in the next generation of chips. Uh, and of course, I suspect that that's where we'll see Beijing sort of move out. I mean, and again, this, 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 is, a, this is sort of an old playbook. Um, you, know, you gain market share by, by making the products artificially cheap through subsidization and, and overcapacity, making it so that none of the other companies who are, who are relying upon sort of commercial inputs, they can't compete, right? They simply cannot sell their chips at a margin of what it costs to make them, um, which means that as those, go, those companies get out of business, right, the PRC sort of dominates that entire sector of older chips. And of course, for our military systems, it's it's older chips that we rely on. Um, you know, for for those of us, you know, with smartphones, you know, and we replace these every two years. You know, you've got good number of advanced chips in here. But if you're talking like an Arleigh Cla Arleigh Burke class destroyer that was built sometime in the early two thousands, obviously those aren't those aren't brand new chips, right? Those are older chips. The same thing with our military aircraft. The same thing with you know a number of our systems. And so in many cases, you know, a lot of our dependencies are actually from a national security perspective on, on, on a lot of older chips. Now, as, as technology advances, those newer chips will then come into those you know, as, we, as we replace things. But that, that, that transition period about you know, how do you keep an industry sort of healthy, um, given that, that the likely interventions by Beijing will be to make it very difficult for those companies to stay in business by, by trying, trying to grab market share. Um, that presents us with some sort of tough trade-offs to make here. Like, how do we, how do we resent, how do we, how do we do this? And getting that, that most of commercial electronics are still made in China, right? They're assembled in China. They have a, they have real good leverage at forcing their chips to be replaced to replace foreign chips. And we've already seen this happen with Micron's DRAM chips. So we've already seen Beijing take actions to force Micron's chips to not be put into electronics inside China and that presumably their own chips. Now, actually what's happening is Samsung and SK Hilinks, but, but, but the reality is, is that eventually Beijing then replaces those with, with their own chips. And so that's, that's, the, that's the dilemma that we're sort of in. And, and we have some tools in that space that we could use, but we have not yet figured out how we want to use them. Um, most of our tools are sort of after the damage has been done rather than, than preparatory. Does the Chips Act, Chips and Science Act, actually provide uh, new tools for us to to mitigate this problem, or do we need something else on the scale of that act uh, to yeah. really make a dent in this problem? Yeah, I mean the, the Chips and Science Act, you know, to my knowledge, does not really cover you know what is the likely second and third order effects of of you know how China responds to our strategy of you know denying them the most advanced chips, right? So if we play, sort of look at so this is this sort of this is this act counteraction sort of action counteraction cycle that we're in. So we've taken an action from a from a sticks perspective 
with the October 7th uh, advanced chip restrictions. And so what we should expect to see from that is that you know, as they are denied in the advanced chips, they're going to move and put those resources into mature chips. And, and as they ramp up that production, uh, we should probably be looking at the trade remedies that we have in that space. And some trade remedies that we have in that space you know, are things like a Section 301 investigation. We could look at is, is China's actions likely going to result in harm, you know, tr you know, trade harms to the United States? Well, I suspect that we would come to the conclusion that it is, and therefore we could put preemptive tariffs on those products that would have it, discouraging Chinese companies and foreign companies and American companies from putting Chinese chips into those things and replacing those that, that are coming out. We could also look at doing sort of preemptive anti-dumping countervailing duties, right? So you know, anti-dumping countervailing duties are there for, for when, when a foreign country dumps products onto your market, you're able to use, you know, uh, anti-dumping countervailing duties to essentially say there's being harm done to our, our economy. Therefore, I'm going to put a duty, i.e. a tariff on the import of that. Again, discouraging that from, from happening. That, that set of authorities is almost entirely designed for after the fact. You have to wait until after a harm has already happened, right? Presumably after our companies have already lost employees and already lost market share. And so it's inherently a, a, an unsatisfying tool to use because it's you have to wait for it to happen. I, I would argue, and I think what, what Robert and I argue for in our chapter is that it's entirely predictable what we're going to see over the next few years. So why not take actions preemptively to ensure that we are protecting ourselves and our workers and our companies from the likely actions that happen almost all in the trade space. So that, that's, that's the authorities we should be pulling on. It's the International Trade Administration at Commerce, it's USTR, um, it's, the, it's, it's the International Trade Commission, these are, the, these are the actors that have the authorities that could act now, and we should probably do so. Great. Uh, well, thank you, Matt, for this great conversation. Um, for those uh, watching and listening, I'm Karis Templeman. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution, and I've been speaking with Matt Turpin, who's a, a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and an advisor at Palantir. Um, we've been talking about a chapter of which he's co-author entitled Mitigating the Input of China's Non-Market Behavior in Semiconductors. That's co-authored with Robert Daly, uh, and it's part of a larger uh, report on the U.S., China, and uh, Taiwan security and the semiconductor space. Uh, we encourage you to check that report out. It's available online at the Hoover Institution's website. Uh, and... Uh, in addition to this chapter, we've got a bunch of others describing the evolution of the semiconductor industry, Taiwan's place in that, um, the evolution of U.S.-China competition, and so forth. Um, thanks again for watching and listening, and I wish you all very well wherever you may be. Thanks, Karis. I'm Karis Templeman. Silicon Triangle is a special podcast series of matters of policy and politics. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we generate and promote ideas advancing freedom. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.